Listener Production. Hi, 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 hi. Hello. Yes, hi. Oh, I see you over there. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Stop, stop, stop. Thank you guys so much. Welcome to come out wherever you are. This is a safe space for curious people to learn more about the coming out experience. So, congratulations. You are now a part of this beautiful community. And because this is a podcast about the coming out experience, it is only fair that I go first. My name is Sean Zepps. I am a gay man who uses he, him pronouns. I first came out as gay in early 2000. I came out in a closet, which is my claim to fame, really. And I most recently came out um, last week to a tradie who was painting my front door. He said Mrs., so I had to correct him. Today, we are welcoming a brand new member to the Come Out Wherever You Are family. Come on. You could just introduce yourself to us. Let us know when you first had to come out and maybe when you most recently have come out. My name is Yvonne Solette, and I was actually in the army. And, um, and I joined the army when I was 18. And at the age of 23, I realized I was gay, but I couldn't come out because there was a policy in place banning homosexuals. So I guess my recent coming out was at the Royal Commission in Sydney to Defence and Veteran Suicide, where it was very public. Avon Sillett may not be a name that you recognize, but it's a name you should know. Avon served in the Corps of Signals and Australian Army for 10 years, and she was the first female recruit instructor at Kapuka. But Avon was gay, and this was all happening in the 80s. Being gay in the army was not just frowned upon, it was against the law. In fact, it was against the law all the way up until 1992 when the law was repealed by the Keating government. So, because Yvonne was gay, she was discharged and her childhood dream was over. I don't want to tell you too much now because I want Yvonne to tell you herself, but I do want to flag, this is a challenging story to hear. So if you hear it and you need support, Open Arms provides free 24-hour counseling for veterans and their families. Their number is 1-800-011-046. That's enough for me. Here's Yvonne. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Oakley. In, in Melbourne, in Victoria. I was the youngest of two older brothers. I was a tomboy. I was born in Oakley. I went to Oakley High School and I lived in Oakley until I went off to join the army at 18. Wow. Back then, and I'm just inferring and making large, gross assumptions, is Oakley not a very accepting place for homosexuals back then or was it just not even a conversation at all? Not even a conversation at all. Mm. Uh, I didn't even know I was gay when I first joined. Um, I didn't realize I was gay until I fell in love with a lady in 1983. So Oakley was just a, a normal suburb of, of Melbourne. And I think back then, I don't think anywhere it was accepting or wasn't even spoken about. Mm. I'm really happy that you've just said, I didn't know I was gay until then. Because if you are a member of the queer community, I th- I would say... And again, large assumptions putting us into two boxes here. But there are most people believe you always know right away. It's in the back of your head and you refuse to acknowledge it. And then there's this other camp that says sometimes it takes an individual to change your heart or or open up your heart to the reality of who you are. And I just have to ask, because I think it's relevant to that specific sentence you've said, 
were you the kind of person who was experiencing love or, or energy and excitement towards men or was sexuality and relationships, did you just really try your best not to think about it? I tried my best not to think about it. Mm. Um, I had, I had, my plan A was to, to join the military and, and to leave school and go straight into the military. It wasn't about having relationships. But back then, I mean, we're talking 1979, I joined. There was no exposure mm. to homosexuality or to the queer community, none at all. Um, you didn't hear it on TV like we do now. It wasn't spoken about. Um, I was a tomboy, as I said, so probably deep down in, in my heart, I, I probably thought I was different. I did fall in love with a female lead role in the um, high school um, production of Annie Get Your Gun, yeah. um, <laughs> but I thought that was just a passing thing. Yeah. Um, and when I first joined the army, I did date men, um, but I didn't, I enjoyed the company, but I didn't enjoy much more with them. Mm. And it was only when I did find um, a female in 1983 that was also in the army that the chemistry was there. And, um, and then I realized that I was, my, my behavior had been different for a reason. Wow. I've heard you now a couple of times prior to this interview talk so passionately about always knowing that this was the path for you. This was important. You wanted to join the army. You thought about it even back then as a forever career. And I'm interested back then going in, not knowing your sexuality, were you and other people aware that it was against the law to be a queer person and be in the army? To be perfectly honest, I, from memory, I, I don't believe I did know that. Mm. Um, it wasn't something, again, it wasn't even discussed at recruitment. Um, my parents were both ex-Navy. Okay. And it was something that I always wanted to do. And I knew that as soon as I left school, I was joining the military. Mm. And it was the army that I ended up getting into. And I'm imagining you really loved uh, your career at that time? Oh, it was like um, a hand into a glove, to be honest. I knew from probably week two of, a, of my basic training that I was a career soldier and I was going to be in for the 20 years plus. There was no doubt about that. And I had no plan B. It, it was... It was my, going to be my life and my career long-term. So, you're dating men, you're enjoying your life, you have a career you've always dreamed about, and then you meet a woman. Talk to us a little bit about what that experience was like for you, and then also talk to us about what was going on in your head in relationship to your career. Oh, there was so much going on in my head. <laughs> um, yeah, we, um, we lived on base, so we lived on, on an army base. And I, and I guess at that time, because I'd been in for five years then, that I, I did know about the homosexual ban. Yep. And, um, and I knew that I, not only was I in the army, but I had a, a top secret clearance because I was in the core of signals. So okay. I had to encrypt, decrypt messages. So I had a top secret clearance and I was in the army and I realized I was a lesbian. So I knew that I had to hide my sexuality. Mm. I, I knew that if anyone found out, I, I would be in a lot of trouble. I'd probably lose my career. So my, my feelings at that time were, and I remember it so clearly, me saying to, to this particular um, female that I, that I was now in a relationship with, that I'm not gay, I'm just in love with you. And if I said that once, I said that a hundred times, that mm. I was trying to convince myself that I'm only in love with this person and she just happens to be a female. And we both knew, we, we both knew that we had to be professional soldiers by day and live our life seclusion, if you like, by, by night and on weekends. Did that affect your ability to do your job? I, I'm just trying to wrap my head around 
you're not talking about just a normal everyday nine to five job. This is not only is it incredibly important nationally, the work that you're doing, but you're also doing a very specific type of work in Signals of Australian Army that requires a ton of focus, I'm guessing. And so to have anything troubling going on in your life, that would be really difficult to lose someone in your life at that time and do the job and focus would be hard. But to have the pressure of that on your shoulders, I imagine that would have a great impact on your ability to work, right? No, funny, funny you should say that. I, I, I can't re- really recall, I, I can't recall it affecting my, my employment. Um, mm. At that stage, I was working in a communication centre here in Melbourne on St Kilda Road, which is directly opposite the shrine, um, which is quite ironic now when we'll talk about that. Yeah. But I worked in a communication centre and it was th- 365 days, 24 hours a day um, that we had to operate that, that communication centre. We were sending messages all around the world, receiving messages from all around the world. Mm. Um, but I don't really recall it having an impact on my actual work. Yeah. Um, but I look back now and I think maybe that's where I have anxiety and I have some minor mental health issues. I wouldn't say it's, it's too, too serious. But if we look back now, I think that's probably where it did start because mm. I was just doing the job that I loved and simply for being me, you know, um, I had to behave differently to, to the people working with me. Mm. And I couldn't tell anyone that I was working with because I knew that if it got out, I couldn't even tell my parents at that stage. So the only person that knew I was in a relationship and in love with a woman was the woman involved. And she also was in the Royal Australian Signal Corps with a top secret clearance. Wow. So, um, but we were professional soldiers. Like I said, we got on with our work. We, we did what we had to do. Mm. That relationship didn't last that long because uh, I think it was probably about 10 months to 12 months. We're still friends today, which mm. is fantastic. But the military wasn't the be all and end all for her where it was for me. So... Um, I, I, I asked for a posting um, not long after, probably 10 months after we got together and I got posted to Sydney, which started another journey for me. Wow. I can't go on without acknowledging. I mean, I did expect that you were going to say, oh yeah, it was really hard and I really struggled to focus, but it just goes to show you that little sentence where you're like, you just had to get on with your life, how strong queer people have had to be for all of human existence, right? We've been around forever and ever and ever, but specifically I have to acknowledge the strength it would take during the 80s and 90s where AIDS and HIV messaging is floating around aggressively and it is not nice. For you to rock up to work each day and be so focused does require you to compartmentalize in your brain, your your emotions, your ability to focus. And I feel like what happened through those decades was a ton of people who were capable, who were forced to be capable of showing up and putting on a face, a beautiful veneer of happiness and focus. And it's powerful because you loved your job so much and I'm happy that you were able to just go there and lose yourself. But it it obviously makes me sad to think that in the background, there's this entire other existence that could have occurred being really happy personally and professionally and having those live side by side. And that didn't. Look, there's there's so many stories now that, you know, at the time I thought, oh, it's only me and I'm the only one in this situation. But as we'll talk um, later into the podcast, um, we'll learn a lot more about where I'm at at the moment. Mm. And there are so many stories now of people that discharged purely because they they knew that they were queer and they knew that there was a policy. Mm. And, and they, they elected discharge without any issue because they thought it was going to be too difficult for them to, to remain in the services. Mm. Um, but for me, that wasn't going to be the case. No. I, um, I was going to be who I was and I was going to live my 
childhood dream out uh, as a soldier in, in the Australian Army. Of course. So you go to Sydney and tell us about what happens when you relocate. Well, when I relocated to Sydney, again, as I said, I'd separated from my partner um, at, at, um, here in Melbourne. And I went to Sydney and I knew then that I had to keep my head down and I didn't know anyone in Sydney, which was probably a good thing. Sure. Um, and I lived out, if, if you know Sydney, you're in Sydney. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I worked at Paddington and I lived at Parramatta um, on an army base out there. And that was a horrible commute every day. We had a little army bus would pick us up and take us home. And, and I just remember that time that I was there, I was sitting on a bus morning and night in my, in my room at the, uh, um, at the barracks of an evening and going into work and doing my job. But it was at that point when I was um, posted to Sydney that I realised that definitely I was gay. Okay. Um, but I made a lot of, fr- well, I didn't make a lot of friends in Sydney, but the people that I made friends with, nobody knew. So not even my parents knew at this stage. Um, and it was during this time whilst, whilst I was in, um, in Sydney at Paddington Barracks there that I applied to be an instructor. I wanted to be a female recruit instructor at... Rack School, which is the World Women's Royal Australian Army Corps there in Mossman in Sydney. That's where I'd done my training. And I was so excited about being an instructor and I thought, yeah, I, I, I'm going to be a corporal instructor. I'm going to go on to be an RSM um, of the Army, which is in the training um, field. But that never happened. But I, I did do my instructor's course and I was so excited because all of a sudden I had to climb ropes and strip rifles and climb walls and do bayonet assault courses and do drill with arms, all these things that I'd never done before. And I ended up raising the very first female platoon of women to go through one recruit training battalion because rack school closed down and we had to move, if you like, all the women were now going to be training at the same establishment, one recruit training battalion in Wagga Wagga um, for the very first time. So January 85, I raised the very first platoon of, of women and uh, we were under the spotlight and I just had to, again, realising now that I was gay, mm. but just I had to be a professional soldier because I was working 16-hour days, seven days a week and I raised eight platoons during two years at that time and that was the highlight of, of my working career and my army career. Is there, again, I'm, I don't want to put any thoughts in your mouth so I hope you'll correct me if it's wrong, but is there a, moment where you just say to yourself, I'm going to obviously have to put the potential of a personal life that is romantic aside so that I can have this amazing career. Because when you talk about your career, you light up still today. That moment that you've just walked us through, I could see it. And it got me emotional having to watch you be like, what a huge opportunity. What a great gift I can see. I get to, I get to do this job. And at the same time, I'm just imagining, you know that you're a lesbian. You know other people who are and they're leaving the career so that they can live this life. Your family don't even, even know. Is there like a point in your life where you just make that decision? You say, I'm sorry, this is self, you're not going to be able to have this? I don't recall actually, you know, um, going, going through those thoughts. I just knew that the job that I was doing, um, as I said, you know, 12 to 16 hour days some days, you know, these are young ladies that have come straight out of home like I had and they didn't know their left foot from their right foot. They came in with their, their makeup bags and their hair dryers and I said, no, we can put all them away now, <laughs> you know. And, um, and, and, and 12 weeks later, these girls marched out as soldiers. 
and I that was my priority, you know. So thinking about a relationship at that time or, or being with male, female or otherwise, it, it wasn't important. I didn't have I didn't have the time, mm. um, I guess, to to have a relationship. But in having said that, I did meet another female who was also in Signal Corps, um, who had come to to Kapuka to be an instructor, and and we did form a relationship, and um, and that was, I guess, the beginning of the end. Okay, so let's talk about what you mean when you say the end. Well, I'd been at Kapuka um, doing the job that I loved for for. For two years, and um, and part there, that's where I met the the, um, the female that was also an instructor, um, and we we started a relationship once again um, toward the end of my my training there, uh, my instructing there, um, and I decided to take a posting to Perth because my parents were now relocated from Melbourne to Perth because my grandparents were were aging, so I took a posting to Perth, and she took a posting to Duntroon to become an officer. So we were we were separated by a, a lot of a lot of the well the Nullarbor Plain let's mm-hmm. just say yeah um, so I continued my my posting to Perth and and I was the corporal there full corporal in charge of the small communication centre and once again I, I was in a relationship but it was quite safe if you like because she was in Canberra doing doing an officer training course so again I made some friends over there I had family there so so that was really really good so I didn't really have to worry too much about me. Mm. My sexuality, if you like, yep. so I was able to 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 have a great time in Perth. You know, I made a lot of friends over there, and and one of those friends today, in fact, is a forty year friend that uh, I just saw recently up in Tarthra, and, and we still reconnect. And her and her husband are living living the dream in Tarthra. And um, I then decided that I would move back to to be closer to to Katrina, who was living um, now in Melbourne um, after her training. And that's where I got posted back to Watsonia Barracks here in Melbourne. And I got posted to the Defence Plaza, uh, as I said, which is now an accommodation building, but it's on St Kilda Road and it was opposite the shrine back then. And I was on duty one day uh, receiving signals. Because what we do is we transmit, receive signals very differently to to emails. I mean, there was no emails or computers back then as we know them. Mm. And uh, and one day I got a, a, a phone call I, I was asked to attend Victoria Barracks, which is what, 500 metres down the road there on St Kilda Road, for an interview, a security interview. And I thought, this is odd. No one else has been called in. Mm. What have I done wrong? So I went into this little room um, with my lieutenant. He came with me. He was unable to speak. He just had to sit in the room and witness what was going on. And I walked into a small room, not much bigger than the room I'm sitting in now, and I had a uh, male sergeant and female sit- sergeant sitting behind a desk. And I still had no clue. I, I was so naive to, to really what was going on. I, I was a corporal. I had a top secret clearance. I was doing encrypting and decrypting of, of messages. And they, was, they were pleasant enough. They were asking me, you know, what have I been up to in the weather? And, you know, and I'm thinking, this is really bizarre. Mm. And then she just looked at me. And this is where my my world collapsed. And she said, we have reason to believe you're homosexual. And I just about died. I just thought, oh, my goodness me, how's this come out? Um, This is the end of my career. And to cut a long story short, three hours later, and I don't call it an interview, I call it an interrogation. Mm. 
I was interrogated for three hours by this male and female um, telling me that they'd been following me, um, telling me that they knew that I had been to Brother Glen with a group of lesbians um, about a month before. We'd been on a, a wine tour. So by now, I, I, I'm really out. Um, I'm, when I say I'm really out, I'm still very professional by day. Sure. And my friends now, my friends network is now including um, Victorian police officers, nurses, military people. So I had a real cross-section of, of, of friends. And um, yeah, once they said that, I, I sort of thought, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going. You, you're not making me leave. I'm, I'm fighting this. Um, so after the interrogation and them demanding names from me of other lesbians, which I, I refused, um, a week later, I, I got called back in. And, and pretty much at that time, I, I knew my career was, was going south fairly quickly. And I just continued to do what I do and continued to do what I did in the, in the communication centre. I still, I, I, I was laying low. And then I got another interview from the SIB, which is the military police. Um, equivalent of our um, detectives, if you like. Yeah. And they again interrogated me for another three hours, um, having proof again, and I had to show cause why I should not have my top secret clearance downgraded to confidential. And if they did that, I would no longer be employable in the Corps of Signals because you had to have a top secret clearance. So I don't know how I did it. I found a lawyer who was an army lawyer and he was on board and he tried everything in his power to assist me with the show cause why I shouldn't be downgraded. And we did say that I'd had two homosexual relationships. But in the duration of my nine years service at that stage, I dated very many men and uh, I was an exemplary soldier and I was a trailblazer because I'd raised that first platoon at Kapuka. Mm. So we did the show cause and um, I was on duty, I was on duty one night at the communication centre just there in St Kilda Road, as I was saying, and I received a signal and I thought, I know that name, F321707, Corporal Yvonne Select, downgraded to confidential, no longer employable in the Corps of Signals due to being homosexual. So at that point in time, I, I, I just froze. Um, and I'm reading my own signal because oh I was in a... God. I was reading because I was in the communication centre. And... Um, and that's where I thought, no, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not giving up. I'm still going to fight this. So then I, with my lawyer, we wrote a redress of grievance, um, telling, pretty much explaining how desperate I was to stay in. But there was also a witch hunt going on at that time in the 80s um, for lesbians. And there is a book out titled Serving in Silence, which mm. Noah Reisman and Shirlene Robinson have written. And my story is in that book with 13 other people. So I wasn't solo. I wasn't the only one but I was one of the only ones that continued to fight. And because I knew nothing else, I didn't have a plan B. It was my life, it was my career, and both my parents died not knowing why I discharged after 10 years. So in the end, I actually elected discharge. I could have stayed in, which is quite ironic really when they're yeah. saying there's a policy in place saying you cannot serve if you're homosexual, but I think it was because I'd put in my uh, redress. They said, okay, we'll downgrade you to confidential, making you unemployable where you work, but we'll give you an option to be a driver or a cook. I didn't want to be a driver or a cook. I wanted to do what I'd been doing, you know. Of course. So I elected discharge. I thought I would always have a target on my back. I thought I'd never get promoted. And, you know, there were people being discharged or, or electing discharge 
because they thought, well, I want to be true to myself. Mm. I wanted to be true to myself too, so I was torn. Here I am, knowing that I'm a, I'm a lesbian and um, I also knew that I was a career soldier. So, yeah, I elected discharge 10 years to the day of, of um, signing on. Wow. And um, I was angry for many, many years after that. I can understand why. I, I want to unpack a lot here. First off, obviously very emotional to hear. Um, I think for someone who was born in 88, who might not have understood the reality of what it was like to be a queer person working, especially for the government or the army at any in any specific role, it's really hard to understand or even believe that that would have been happening. I recently read The Deviance War, which is the homosexuals versus the United States of America that tracks the United States government's witch hunt to remove gay and lesbians um, who worked in the government. And so naturally, because I've read the book, I do understand now that they really believed that because our brains were broken in their mind, we were more susceptible, say, to being recruited by the communists and then therefore Correct. taking down the uh, the American government. Yep. Is that why or your understanding why it was against the law and why they were specifically searching for people like you? What was the rationale? Why could you not do your job and be a lesbian? Look, the policy was in place, and I, and I think it started um, it started many many decades before I I'd even joined. Um, and there was a lot of it then to do with initially the policy came out mainly directed at at um, at males. Yep. You know, going to war and 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 not feeling comfortable. You know, um, in having someone that that is homosexual um, in in a, in a trench with you or something. You yeah. know, or sharing showers and stuff. So. So I think it, it originally dated back, and Noah Reisman is the historian that knows all of this, and he's just quite incredible. And he's the one that did the interview for all of these people. But getting back to the policy, um, look, they talk about us being, um, oh, I can't even think of the word right now, sorry. Susceptible? Yeah, not susceptible, no. Um, uh, not a danger to, to the Russians, you know. I've got it in my, I, I spoke about it all the time mm. and I can't speak of it, I can't think of the word right now. Um, a threat, if yeah. let's just say a threat, um, a threat to, to to the Russians. And I just say, well, I'm sure they don't care that I'm gay, you know. it's It, it was quite an interesting concept and, and I do have a copy of the policy, not here with me today, but mm. if you can look at the policy and it, it is on display over at the Defending with Pride exhibition, which I've I've contributed over there. Um, but there were so many stupid reasons why. You know, if you think back now to that time when I was serving and you discharged every lesbian that was in the military at that time, you mm. would have lost the chunk sure. of, of your of your military. Now, the reason I'm angry and still is angry to the day is is because I was singled out. I was victimized. I have friends, very dear friends that served 20 plus years. They've been together 40 years and they met in the military. And I know many couples, female couples that, you know, got their 20 year pension, mm. um, got their superannuation and, and they got through unscathed and, and they were lesbians and they met in the military. Mm. So why was I singled out? Why was I victimized? Why was I harassed? Why did that happen? Why the people I was in the wrong wrong place, wrong time. Okay. You know, it really depended on your senior um, officer at the time. I just happened to be at Watsonia Barracks. Watsonia Barracks was having a 
there was there was talk, and, and I'm not sure how accurate this is. There was talk there that there was a a drug culture, and we're talking marijuana back then. Nothing mm. too serious. Yeah. Um, and the drug culture was in one of the male dominated um, units there at Watsonia Barracks, and I think they then said, "What about the lesbians over there at Six Sig Regiment?" So that's when the I, I suppose the attention was diverted across to to the female lesbians. And I was a corporal and there was about four signal um, SIGs, uh, privates, females, um, that were all sort of pulled in at the same time, including my partner at the time. We were, we were caught in it. Um, we didn't know this. We were se- sitting in separate rooms, both being interrogated at the same time. She got up and she walked and she said, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm discharging. I'm not putting up with this. And, and I was the only one that, that really, really fought. Um, but I, it ended up being a, a fight um, to no avail, really, because I, I did end up discharging 10 years before I had completed my 20 years. So there were many, many lesbians, and, and I can only really speak of lesbians. And in fact, I know that there are many, many um, gay men too that, that were serving at that time. But, but for me, I can only acknowledge the lesbians that I knew. And, and when I did get home that night after that interrogation and they'd been asking me to write a list of names, I wrote a list of names in my, in my home mm. and I had 50 women without even thinking about it. And I destroyed that. And I never told anybody about that list. Um, so it was simply wrong place, wrong time for me. If I'd stayed posted in Perth or, or, or Kapuka, mm. I probably would have served my 20 years and, and maybe got my gold card through DVA, had my pension for life. Um, my superannuation would have been probably a lot better than what it is today. So I didn't get an opportunity to serve overseas. I didn't get an opportunity to be a peacekeeper overseas. All these things that was my dream that I wanted to do was taken from me purely because I was a lesbian. Wow. I want to unpack your family a little bit, but I can't move a step further without acknowledging or speaking about the present. So obviously, you've had an opportunity to speak your story. Your name is becoming a lot more recognizable, especially within our community for your ability, willingness to open and tell your story. What is the Army doing about it now? You have, you're obviously upset and it's justified and there are 100% major financial and professional ramifications to what occurred in the 80s. Um, you, your ability to work and doing what you love and it trained your entire life and then all of the financial reasons you just listed. Is there anything that is being done or looked into or can be done for people like you? Well, not necessarily people like me, but what I didn't say is when I did discharge, I did have suicidal thoughts. I never attempted suicide, but I did have suicidal ideation. I was depressed for many, many months. I was in a dark hole. I thought, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? So there were suicidal thoughts there. So as we speak, there is the Royal Commission into Defence and Veteran Suicide going on around Australia. It started in Brisbane in December and it will continue for another 12 months. And I put in a submission to give evidence at the Royal Commission based on the way I felt after I'd been, it, let's say I was kicked out, although yeah. I did elect discharge. Um, I didn't think my story would be much, really. I, you know, I, there were bigger stories than mine. Anyway, they were really interested in hearing my story. So on the 14th of February this year, I went to Sydney and I gave evidence um, in front of the, of the Royal Commission and I told them my story and I told them how I felt. I told them that I still suffer with mental health and um, and depression, and how now I'm an advocate, and now I'm a spokesperson for all those people that this happened to, that didn't know that 
there were others like us, you mm. know. And um, and after the Royal Commission, I I spoke openly, and and I had many many people contact me t- telling me how brave I was. So what I'm hoping for now from the Royal Commission is we're at the midway port na- point now, and I think within the next two days they're releasing their mid-year um, report, and I believe in that report because I. One of my recommendations, and Noah Reisman spoke last week from, from Sweden where he was on holidays, he spoke as an LGBTI historian into all the ADF members that have been treated the way I was treated. And his recommendation was an apology and possibly compensation. I don't do this for compensation. I do this, I do this for an apology and, and to make it public. The UK government, the German government and the Canadian government have all apologised to their LGBTI veterans. So we are still waiting for our apology. And I really believe after the Royal Commission released their findings that um, I think we'll see Elbow up there apologising to us. That's why the exhibition that's going on at the moment, you know, over at the Shrine, means so much to me because finally a war memorial in Australia is actually acknowledging the LGBTIQ community, veterans. And that is something that I never thought I would see in my lifetime. Mm. So I'm hoping that, oh, recently I, I wrote a letter to Angus Campbell, who's the chief of the Defence Force. I wrote a letter to the DVA secretary, Liz Cosson, and we've written many letters to the new Labor government, which is really nice. We were quite happy when there was a change in government because we're hopeful yeah. that we'll get an apology from this current um, government. Mm. And that's what I'm fighting for and is an apology. Amazing. Amazing because it's a gift to someone like me. It's a gift to someone who was never taught about our history. Was never, sorry, you know, who grows up believing that they're alone, that this is a new concept and a new idea and makes it all the way to their 20s before they start to learn that there were people like, you know, them all around the world and that we've been around and in every country and in every small town and that there's been struggles in, in huge ways and in small ways. And then all those years later, to have the truth come out about what was affecting you is a, is a very useful and helpful reminder to people like me that one, the, even though it might seem great, the fight is not over. Two, when there are injustices occurring in front of us, we do have an opportunity and should, so that we are not recreating history, speak up. But also I think it's useful to understand the damage that can be done. It is useful, even though it's terrible to have to hear, to be reminded because it sparks and lights a fire within a younger generation of people who think, well, this will never happen to me. And the reality is it could, again, in every country, we are under attack. And even though we're getting into a better place, I think hearing your story and seeing you step forward is just a very useful part of our history so that it's not buried, so that it's out there for the world to hear, so that when people type in gay Australia army, articles pop up with the truth about what occurred. I think it's really powerful. So thank you. No, you're welcome. And it wasn't it wasn't a journey that I was going to be on, you know, but I did live for many years with a lot of anger. I mean, we're talking I discharged in 1989 and it wasn't, I did go back to the defence as a public servant. I, people wonder why I did that, but 
we are now talking 2006 and I went back as a public servant. I worked there for 12 years doing payroll for military members that were posted overseas. During that time, I never told anyone my story because I was back in defence and, and you could be out and, and I was a civilian now, but I just chose not to share my story with the people that I worked with. And then whilst I was there, it was in 2015, uh, an email on our intranet sort of came out asking if there was any LGBTI um, ex-servant or current serving members that were interested in telling their story. And I immediately thought, this sounds like me. So I contacted Nora and Sherlyn and I said, I have a story to be told. And it was from that day in 2015 when they interviewed me and travelled around Australia interviewing many people that I thought, I think I found my journey. Mm. I think I found what I'm, what, what my purpose is now. It was so cathartic for me. Somebody finally wanting to, my partners had been hearing it for many years, but finally someone wanted to hear my story. And I told Shirlene in the pub directly opposite where I was working at the Defence Plaza. And we, we sat there for three hours and we laughed and we cried. And my story, as I said, is now in the book Serving in Silence. Shortly after that, an exhibition started, Serving in Silence, which I'm a part of. Then the book Pride in Defence was released, same authors. And then all of a sudden I thought, yes, this is what I'm going to do. So I met up with a, a guy in Dalesford by chance. You know, same thing happened to him. He was Air Force. But he didn't get an opportunity. He had three days and he was told to leave the base. Mm. He was homeless. He didn't have a mobile phone. We didn't have them back then. He had no friends. He couldn't return to Dalesford. Um, he was ashamed. He lived in his car. He was homeless. The military made him homeless. Um, and he was a 20-year um, Air Force man. And um, he had three years. And because he'd been followed into gay bars and they had photographic proof, he was pretty much chucked off base, if you like. Mm. So him and I have now formed a little organisation thinking, well, if there's two of us in Dalesford, there must be quite a few people in the same boat. So... That's what we do now. It's wonderful. It's wonderful because you're right. There are a lot of people and some of them might not be on earth anymore, but their family and next generation have been aware of their stories. And so they can connect, they can hear the story and they can understand and get a glimpse into what it would have been like for their parents or grandparents to have experienced it. And then there's other people outside of, of the army and outside of government who had the exact same thing happen to them, right? There were really no industries that weren't searching for and trying their very best to get yeah. queer people out of their offices. And so I'm sure lots of people who had that experience get the opportunity to feel seen and heard. But really for younger people who hear the story, it's also just a really important part, I guess, of that educational journey is to understand what was the past so that we don't recreate the future. I do want to just take one last step back. This is obviously a show about the coming out experience. In many ways, yours was taken from you. Like you were outed on this uh, device that you're like hearing, you're literal, literally being outed so multiple people can hear. You're being outed in that room um, by like these private investigators or your colleagues. And one of the sentences that you said that really stuck with me through the lens of coming out is often... Um, Globally and within our community, when we hear the word coming out, we link that to family. We often think of the moment as the moment you tell your family, and that wasn't something that happened to you. And so I'm interested in how do you feel about that? Is that something that you have spent time thinking about, the fact that your parents never found out? Is that something you regret? Um, and if you could come out to them now, or if, if they could see where you are today, do you think they'd be proud? 
It's an interesting question. Um, my mum, I, I was out to my mum. My oh, mum did know I was gay, but okay. they didn't realise why I was discharged. Got it, got it, got it. Um, they, they realised I was a 20-year soldier and why all of a sudden were, were you no longer in, you know. Mm. Um, so my my mum was quite comfortable with, with me being gay and, and I had taken a few of my girlfriends home at that stage and dad was an old Korean war vet and... Um, Harder for him. I'm really, yeah, dad, dad struggled. Dad always had, I was the only girl, the youngest. Dad had always imagined me as a bride and having grandchildren and, and that never happened. I was more probably of a tomboy than my brothers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so my mother accepted that I was gay. My mother died very early. She died um, the same age I am now. She died at 61 of melanoma back in 97. And that was the hardest day of my life. The second hardest day of my life was what happened to me um, when, I, when I heard the word that you're a homosexual. Um, so I couldn't tell them. I, my dad only died five years ago, but I think my mum would be very proud of what I'm doing now mm. and I think my dad wouldn't kind of understand it. Um, I have done some education in aged care facilities up in Dalesford because they're getting a new wing up there on one of the uh, Hepburn House, LGBT on Friends wing at the aged care facility. And I've done a bit of education over there and with the residents. And there were several elderly men that got up and just walked out and didn't want to hear my story. And I think my father would, would be one of those men. Um, I think deep down he might be proud, yeah. but I don't think he would ever verbalise that. So, yeah, they both died knowing that I was gay, but not knowing why I discharged. And the other thing that I struggle with is that I have two older brothers that have never accepted me, um, one being gay and two, I don't think they ever accepted the fact that that I went off and joined the army um, because that was the furthest thing from their minds. And, and with what's going on for me at the moment, which has been so public, I've heard nothing from my brothers. So only last night I said to my wife, only married in May, so we've been together 17 years, so I can now say my wife. Mm, congratulations. Thank you, my <laughs> wife and I. Mm. Um, yeah, I only said to her last night that it's time now for me to sever my ties from my brothers because I've had nothing from them. With all the publicity I've had, I, I feel quite saddened mm. um, by that, but I'm okay with that because I've, I've found a new family yep. and that that's my wife's siblings and so... Um, I'm good. I'm happy. I've got two beautiful boys. One's 22, one's 20 from a previous relationship and they're fantastic. And, um, and I have my wife and, and the three of them were all at the opening of the Defending with Pride exhibition last week. And, um, I was very proud to have them all there. Oh, you should be. And on the final note, oftentimes within our community, we say, because our families don't usually accept us, we get to choose our own right? We get to choose and create our own. And unlike other cultures and communities um, where you are born directly into it, our relationship to being gay ends usually with us. Um, And then a new person is born in another part of the world to another straight family. And then they have to raise themselves up to realize they're a member of the community. It's not passed down the same way me being Cuban is, right? Where it's like in your blood and in the food that you eat. And that's, that's a pity. But one of the great gifts we have later in life is that we get to realize we're a part of this larger community and I'm a member of that community and so are you and so we're family and um, I'm a parent and, and so are you. And I think one of the beautiful gifts is that I get to sit here and hear your story and I get to be really proud. I get oh, to you know, thank be, you. be proud that, thank you so that much. people like you exist and 
share your story and hopefully many more people hear it. Um, so thank you. Thank you for being honest. Thank you for speaking up. Oh, you're more than welcome. Um, and if I can just say again, the Defending with Pride exhibition at the Shrine, it runs for a year. And, and I would like everyone to go through and have a look at that and see what we went through, you know. And we had protesters there last week saying, oh, why are you putting the, why the rainbow lights going on the Shrine? This is wrong. But then I say, well, thanks for the exposure, for the exhibition. <laughs> Pop inside and have a read of our stories. And then you'll realise that it wasn't wrong. We were simply treated poorly because of our sexuality. Amazing. I do, I do have to ask one last question. There are people working in the army today who are closeted in every country all around the world. There are people who are working outside of the army who feel that they can't be themselves and show up to work. And I just wonder, because of what you're doing, you're constantly having to remember what it was like to be at this job you loved so much and to not be yourself. And I just wonder what you would say to them. There are people listening who are in the closet right now who don't feel it's possible to be themselves and work. And I just wonder if you have a fresh perspective on that. Oh, look, 100%. I mean, last week, we I don't know if you recall the Bruce Ruxton incident in 1982 at the Shrine. Mm -hmm. um, have a look at it. The Bruce Ruxton incident, Shrine of Remembrance, five ex-gay serving um, men tried to lay a rainbow wreath back in 82. And Bruce Ruxton, who was the president of RSL Victoria at that stage, pushed them aside and said, no, that, that wreath's going in the bin. One of those men is still alive. And one of those men the other day laid the wreath at the launch of oh. our Defending with Pride exhibition. He came down from Mildura. And I remember him saying, and he looked at Nate Byrne in the eye because we had a, an interview with Nate the following morning after the launch. And, uh, and Phil just looked him in the eye and he just looked down the camera lens and he said, look, guys, anything is possible. And he said, if I can help one person with this exhibition or with what I've done today, be it in the military, be it in the public service, be it anywhere, you know, you can be who you want to be. And that's why I feel that I'm an advocate now, not just for the military, but for the LGBTI community. Just be strong, believe in yourself and, um, and you'll be okay. Thank you so much. This was really wonderful. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Okay, we are back. How are you going? How are you feeling? If this episode left you wanting more information about our wonderful LGBTQIA plus alphabet, then you should check out Minus 18. They're Australia's LGBTQIA plus charity. They have heaps of resources on their website and they run trainings for workplaces and classrooms. Minus 18 are on all socials at minus 18 youth and their website is minus 18.org.au. But minus 18 isn't a helpline. So if you're looking for support, you can call QLife on 1-800-184-527 for free every day from 3 p.m. till midnight. If you're feeling anxious and not up to talking on the phone, they also have web chat at qlife.org.au. Lifeline is also available 24 hours a day for crisis support and suicide prevention. Their number is 13 11 14. If you want to be a part of the Come Out Wherever You Are community, you can slide into our DMs on Instagram at Come Out Wherever You Are. You can also follow me at Sean Zeps. That's S-E-A-N-S-Z-E-P-S. Come Out Wherever You Are is presented by me, Sean Zeps, producer Lindsay Green, executive producer Jennifer Goggin, and audio producer Chris Marsh. 